This is the John Oakley Show podcast. And away we go into hour three, continuing to be a great day for talk radio. Weatherwise, eh, uh, but we deter or we uh, continue on undeterred is what I meant to say. Ernie Eves is with us as we get our roundtable discussion going midweek Wednesday. It's usually the way it goes. Former premier and finance minister here in the province. How's Ernie? I'm great. Made it in. No problem. Okay. Uh, And you came in from? Well, I just came from the office today. Okay. Across the hall. Sometimes that takes me an hour and a half, but today it only took me 15 minutes. I don't want you telling tales out of school, but uh, you're here safely and warm, and so uh, we're all better served for that. Peggy Nash, visiting professor at Ryerson University's Faculty of Arts and Community Services and former Canadian labor official and former NDP MP for Parkdale High Park. How's Peggy? I am very well on this icy day. It is icy, and uh, we're glad you're here as well. John Turley, you rounding out our round table. Risk management consultant specializing in capital markets with extensive experience on Bay and Wall Streets. How's John? Very well, thank you. Good. And with that extensive experience on Bay and Wall Streets, I've got to ask you first, John, what the hell is going on? Cryptocurrency. There's a story about uh, one of the exchanges, the largest exchange in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, CEO and sole director... Uh, a young man named uh, Cotton uh, died in India earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And apparently uh, some of these funds are tied up uh, in a place only he had access to, and his uh, access is encrypted. Nobody can get to it. They're looking for notes around the house that he might have left, you know, details of his password and so on and so forth. There could be a big scandal brewing, but the question about it as well is whether or not uh, this is signaling, again, more discredit on cryptocurrency and that 100, well, $250 million locked up. Yep. Creditors are going nuts. Mm-hmm. What does that say for cryptocurrency? Well, it says uh, from a risk management point of view, there's no governance and controls in these businesses. I mean, there's absolutely no way you would give the key to one person for that kind of money uh, at any uh, properly run organization. So, I mean, I, I'm thinking, I don't know what his favorite hockey player is in that hockey player's number, but maybe I can figure <laughs> this uh, this out right now. Uh, but it's awful. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars lost here. Uh, there's folks who had entrusted uh, that company that he ran with their money, and he clearly, uh, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a shame, obviously, a tragedy. Someone dies so young. But frankly, he obviously didn't manage that company well because there's no way of getting access to the funds. Right. Uh, and that's outrageous. He left a will, apparently made everything out to his bride a couple of days back. Yeah, but uh, it's the password that matters. I know it is a password. Well, the, the, yeah. There's a new password, bride. <laughs> bride. Could be. Uh, try everything. You need CIA cryptographers, these uh, people, the Enigma code. Uh, they're going to crack this thing. $250 million locked up this way. To the point, and I just wanted to uh, follow up on that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who bought in, I guess, during the fever of a year or a year and a half ago, when the thing had spiked at 20000 I think sure. Bitcoin, that is, uh, is down to about 3000 and change now. Right. Uh, serious devaluation. Uh, is it because the people that went in blindly didn't really know much about cryptocurrency and what it all involves? Uh, I think uh, that's very possible. I mean, I, as you know, I'm not a fan of cryptocurrency. Uh, my view is it was very much like uh, a pyramid scheme. It was being driven by momentum. People were gambling on this. Uh, and uh, we saw the bottom fall out of it as more and more countries looked at it and said, mm, we don't want to do that. You had, uh, as I mentioned uh, mentioned in the past, Goldman Sachs looked at trading it and said, no, we're not going to do that either. It basically has lost uh, its, uh, a lot of credibility with uh, you know governments and, and, and credible businesses that said, look, this is just too... 
uh, it's too out there right now. We're not ready to take this on. And as a result, there hasn't been a market for it. The challenge, again, with this particular company is you have no governance, no controls. And I suspect someone's going, someone's going to say, where's the regulation coming into play here? Good points all. Uh, further to the question, the loss of credibility, uh, not to make it awkward or anything, but Peggy, what's the NDP's position on Venezuela? <laughs> <laughs> well, let you me just say... You mean five minutes? I can <laughs> on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, well, let me just say, I, I just want to get in on this cryptocurrency thing oh, for a I minute. I guess you do. <laughs> <laughs> anything to change this up. Uh, before, before Venezuela. But, you know, it just shows how one person's red tape is another person's due diligence and prudent oversight. It seems, you know, if you're if you're going to have a major financial venture uh, or any kind of bank of any kind, that you know, having offs fee or or some other regulator involved. I mean, you know, normally any business would have at least two signers for like a, a paper check. So but I think they're regulated by the OSC, aren't they, John? I do not know who regulates this. Well, how, how can it be regulated and one person has the passcode? Oh. I, I mean, there's also, I mean, who the heck knows, but this person has died on the other side of the world. There has so been speculation say, yeah. that, yes, so they say. Um, so I, I think there may be more to the story in the days to come, but it does say buyer beware. If it looks too good, maybe, maybe it is. On Venezuela... Um, I don't have any insight into what the party's position is. You I, don't. I don't I, think anyone does in the NDP, <laughs> but apparently. <laughs> no, I think that uh, what what uh, I can only go by what the leader has said, which is that they, uh, they want to see uh, a peaceful solution and not just throw they're lot in with the Americans who look like they're going to seek a military solution. Now, uh, the Europeans and a number of Latin American countries and um, uh, the uh, and the Pope are involved in trying to find some some third opportunity for a yeah. negotiated settlement. Well, what and if it that isn't... is what I heard Jagmeet Singh support. All right, but Peggy, if it isn't a peaceful thing and it requires boots on the ground and uh, a military... Yeah, but interve- whose boots, John? You know, the Americans' record well, of the... boots on the ground in Latin America has been one of massive yeah, you... human rights All violations. Right, I don't think that's the direction we, we just had a support. Lima conference that Christian Freeland hosted up in Ottawa. And uh, there were these 14 Latin countries, and they're all, you know, complicit in wanting to change the government in Venezuela, get this Maduro uh, kleptocrat and tyrant out of there. So uh, why wouldn't we just sort of support them in that regard? Wouldn't that be the righteous endeavor? Well, why does it always take on the uh, timber of, well, this is an American CIA inspired coup d'etat? It doesn't well, the be. fact that John Bolton wrote 5,000 troops on his uh, notepad. Uh, at at the meeting. He but, was playing some video game and he was uh, <laughs> sending but, a signal to his kid. You know, I guess, you know, if, if, if we truly believe in democracy, then this is up to the people of Venezuela. And uh, if, if there's a way to negotiate that they hold new elections that does have international support and monitors and uh, the parties involved can agree to that, that would seem to be uh, a way forward. I- I'm just very leery of saying, let's just get in there and have a regime change, because that hasn't worked out so well. All right. Well, I guess I'm just uh, wondering if, you know, the uh, NDP are subscribing to real politic or it's, uh, you know, 
a lot of things that uh, might sound nice in theory and practice. It's a dirtier world. I'll leave it for now, though. I didn't want to go that deeply into the weeds, Peggy. Uh, I wanted to move on to other matters because we've got our own swamp to uh, drain here in the province of Ontario. Mr. Eves, you're familiar with this. This health care debate, by the way, it was the NDP and Andrea Horvath that uh, said they came up with draft legislation that show the ship has sailed. Doug Ford has already got on plan. It's been signed off by Cabinet. Uh, They're going to reform and privatize the health care system in Ontario. How do you see it? What do you hear? What do you know? You've got your ear to the ground, finger on the pulse, Mr. Eves. I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Sergeant Schultz defense. (laughs) Well, Uh, look at I mean, the health care issue is a huge issue in the, in the province of Ontario and across the country. I, I think what a lot of people forget is that 35 to 40 percent of our health care system is already privately owned. That much? It, 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 yes. If you, if you go to a lab to be tested, it's privately owned. It just happens to be paid through the OHIP program. Uh, I don't think most Ontarians understand that to start with. Uh, I think there's lots of improvements that could be made to the system. You have an outdated sort of institutional system with respect to hospitals. You don't have room enough room in long-term care facilities. You don't have enough, you know, out-of-institution care, in my opinion. There's lots of things that you can do to improve the system. The problem is any time you suggest you might want to think about doing some of those, is exactly what what you got from the NDP in Ontario this past week. Well, you're going to destroy the universality of the healthcare system. I got news for you: there is no universality of the healthcare system right now. Forty percent of it is already privately owned, and if you think for one minute that everybody's treated equally in the other sixty percent, you're crazy. It doesn't work that way. We all know that. We all live in the real world. Now, how can we protect? The access to the system, I think what's important, what's often forgotten about this in this debate, is the patient. We're trying to help the people, the patients that need help. So what's the best way we can do that without make, making people wait for weeks and weeks, or in some cases months, and in some cases years, for proper treatment and getting to see a specialist and getting a, a necessary procedure done? And if you can somehow devise a system where... Physicians have to put in X number of hours, days, a week uh, into the public health care system, and then they do what they want with the rest of their time. Or if you want to open up MRIs 24 hours a day, and if somebody wants to come at 2 a.m. in the morning and they're prepared to pay 1700 bucks to get an MRI, I don't see how that hurts the system. That actually eliminates a wait list. It actually shortens the wait list for the rest of the people on the system. But you know, last hour. Provides more access. Like I raised this last hour. And uh, if there is, you know, even a scintilla of privatization, the for-profit motive in competition, uh, this is according to one of the panelists anyway, it implies that people are going to be getting preferential treatment, jumping the queue, and therefore the whole thing starts to unravel. Universality is... Nothing uh, left to stand on. John, do you sense? No, so, so that's an ideological argument. And, and uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in Germany and France studying their systems, and that's who we should be comparing ourselves to. Uh, these are two countries that I would argue are far more left-wing in many of their uh, approaches to politics than we are. Uh, they allow for uh, a private and public system to coexist. Uh, and, frankly, their costs, uh, at least in Germany, are lower than ours in Canada. And importantly, their outcomes are much better than ours in Canada, and their wait times are much lower than ours in Canada. So you have to ask yourself, why is that? 
And in part, it's because of their funding model. They don't do envelope funding. They do funding per procedure. And what that means is when you go into a hospital, if someone's got a broken arm, you get paid for the broken arm. The amount is agreed to by the insurance companies, the government, and the medical system. Here, they do envelope funding, where they throw a big chunk of money at a hospital or a network of hospitals and say, this is all the money you got for a year. Then you have to start rationing that money uh, if, you, if you run out because you've got too many people coming to the hospital. That's one, one part of the problem. But the other challenge, too, is, is that, as Ernie was saying, if you have people in the system who are waiting in line, who will go at you know 2 o'clock in the morning, whenever it is, that reduces the wait time for those people who do not have the funds to pay. And so right now, the only universal aspect of our healthcare system is the right to wait. Wait in the hallway, wait outside for the MRI, for the CAT scan. You're just waiting. Yeah, but the uh, argument, the counter-argument to that is uh, the person without the means to pay would be relegated to the 2 a.m. MRI, the person with the No, ability. exactly the opposite. It's I'm the saying. opposite. So, so what happens? Let's say you've got 50 people in line, right? And let's say 20 of them can go at, uh, you know, off hours and pay it for on their own. That line has just gone down to 30 people, which means that those 30 people now are going to get better served and quicker served. And let me be clear, there is a two-tier system right now in Canada. You know, you go down to to uh, Bay Street there and you'll see all the private clinics. Who do you think goes to those? It's immediate access. So, you know, this ideological argument has to stop. What this is about is helping people who don't have the means get access to health care quicker and more efficiently. I got into problem in 2003 election in a scrum in Barrie because I said there's something wrong with the system where my dog can get an MRI tonight at St. Joseph's Hospital in London, Ontario. And that was true at that time. I can pay for my dog to get an MRI, but I cannot pay for my mother to get an MRI. And at that time, she was on a wait list that was 17 weeks long, or she could go to Buffalo and pay 1700 bucks. So I can get my dog done. That's no problem. But I can't get my mother done. You think that's a fair system? Do you think that helps people? Helps a lot of pets, I guess. I well, have pets. Either that or we've got to make uh, the veterinarian services public, right, Peg? <laughs> uh, why, don't, why don't we come back in a moment and uh, I'll dovetail this discussion into education as well because that's another thing that uh, looms large on the horizon, I guess, with the provincial conservatives. More with our roundtable, Ernie Eves, John turley Ewart, and Peggy Nash in a moment on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.